Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at Pakistan, where they've just held elections and it seems as if Imran Khan, the former cricketer and political outsider, is the victor. So what happens now? Joining me on the line is our correspondent, Kieran Stacey, who covered the elections. And also on the line is our Asia news editor, Victor Mallet. Um, Kieran, first, uh, we're talking about 24 hours after the polls closed. Has Imran's uh, party clearly won? Yeah, we've now got enough votes to be pretty sure that Imran Khan is going to be the next Prime Minister of Pakistan. We've had final declarations from around 30 constituencies, but we've had about 50% of the vote from the rest. And what is becoming clear is that Imran Khan has won. He's won bigger than most people thought. He's won probably over 100 seats, maybe over 110, which puts him within touching distance of a majority. As the day goes on, it might be that results come even more in his favor and he gets that majority, which would be far better than anyone was expecting. And even if he falls just short, it shouldn't be too difficult for him to do a couple of alliances with smaller parties and get himself installed as prime minister in the coming days. And Victor, I mean, how big a political change is this in Pakistan? You've covered many Pakistani elections over the years, and normally it's dominated by two parties associated with the Bhutto family and Nawaz Sharif's family. And, and here we have a, a newcomer. Yeah, he's broken the mold in that sense, in, in that he was a very sort of distant third, and now he's come back and, and clearly won this election. I think the question really is whether he's going to be a mold breaker or a big change in terms of what he actually does when he's in power. And I think there it's a little bit more dubious. You know, he's a, a Pashtun, but he's brought up in Lahore, a privileged family, and he's going to face exactly the same problems that other governments, civilian governments, have faced in the past. Very heavy corruption. Of course, he's talked about being an anti corruption campaigner. And that's something that may set him apart from his predecessors. But his other economic policies are not necessarily that different from what other people have said they're going to do. He's going to reform some of the state-owned enterprises. He's going to widen the tax net. These are all things that are urgently needed. He's going to develop tourism, which is certainly a very tough ask in a place like Pakistan. But I do think he's going to come up against exactly the same problems that his predecessors have come up against. And that is essentially the army, whether or not the army pushed him into power or not. And that's what his opponents suspect. They clearly remain incredibly influential. They seize a large amount of the of the budget of the state for themselves. And it just narrows the space in which civilian politicians like him can actually operate in. And I think that is going to be a challenge. And, and we're already looking at quite a severe economic crisis. I mean, there's a very severe foreign exchange crisis that he, the next government, is going to have to deal with really in a matter of weeks. Kieran, before we go into some of those really crunchy issues that Victor's raised about the economy, about the army, just give us a sense of Imran's personal journey, because I think that for years, many people in Britain, because I guess they'd heard of him as a famous cricketer, assumed that he would sweep to power. But actually, it's taken him literally decades, hasn't it, since he returned as a kind of semi-playboy celebrity? 
It has. So he set up his parties, the PTI, which means Movement for Justice. He set that up in 1996, promising to sweep aside Pakistan's endemic corruption. And it's taken him until now to get anywhere close to power. It looked like he was going to break through in 2013 when he toured the country just before that election and was gathering crowds of up to 100,000 people. I think what became clear after that election when he came a distant third is that A, a lot of those crowds were there just to see the man who led the Pakistani cricket team to the World Cup in 1992. And B, what has been his consistent problem in politics is that Pakistani politics is dominated by so-called Baradri links. These are kind of clan or family ties, which mean that what happens is that powerful local politicians will do deals with heads of clans to make sure that everybody within that network votes the same way. This is what has kept Nawaz Sharif's party in particular in power in Punjab. It's the power of patronage. It's clientele, basically. They've got enough money. They can keep these networks beholden to their party. And Imran Khan has found it very difficult to penetrate through that. This time, one of the reasons he's been able to is, A, he's been more willing to do these local alliances. And people have been more willing to do them with him as well as he's looked more likely to win. B, he seems to have had, or at least his opponents claim he's had the backing of the army. And C, his anti-corruption narrative is cutting through a lot more, not least because Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister, is in jail on corruption charges that Imran Khan himself brought to the Supreme Court. And Victor, I mean, give us a sense of what this election means for the wider region and and the wider world. I mean, I, I, I suppose there was, outside Asia, lots more concentration on... Pakistan and its geopolitical significance at the height of the Afghan war when uh, it really played a critical role and in the aftermath of of 9-11. Now I think that, uh, you know, in the think tanks in in the US, they probably think about it a a little less. But Pakistan does seem to be, if you like, in play between the United States and China, doesn't it? It plays a kind of ambiguous role. No, that's right. I mean, I think there's a danger for Western policymakers if they think that because they recognize Imran Khan as a cricketer and a former playboy, that means he's going to be sympathetic to Western values. He's actually shown exactly the opposite. I mean, not not through his lifestyle, which does remain fairly Western, I think, uh, in reality, but through his policies, he's probably going to have Islamist allies. He's been very critical of the U.S. war effort and the way it's being conducted in Afghanistan. He, he's kind of come down, I think, in favor of the blasphemy law in uh, in Pakistan, which is which is controversial. But I think for Western Democrats, if you like, I think he's going to come up against very similar issues in foreign policy that his predecessors have come up against. He shows no sign of wanting to end this rather ludicrous enmity with neighboring India, uh, which Noah Sharif, actually, to his credit, did try to soften a little bit. The border between India and, and Pakistan in Punjab, near his hometown of Lahore should really be the world's busiest border, but it's actually one of the quietest. If you go across it, there's almost no traffic going across. And then he's also going to have to deal with the issue of China. You know, China is investing tens of billions of dollars in infrastructure projects in Pakistan. And um, any government, including Imran Khan's, is going to have to deal with that. And there, there are sort of controversies in Pakistan about that in terms of whether the debts can be repaid for some of these power stations uh, and those kind of issues. And, and as you say, there is a kind of geopolitical uh, power play between the United States and China. And of course, India is there on the sidelines. 
Kieran, I mean, let's assume for the moment that he does take power reasonably smoothly. Do you have any sense yet of what an Imran Khan government's going to be like? I mean, does he have any administrative experience? Does he have experienced people around him? And do we know whether he'll make a fast start or do you think it's likely to be a while as he feels his way? Yeah, it's a good question. His party, the PTI, has been in power in the state of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa uh, for the last few years. Um, How well they've done there is fiercely disputed, but it is not Pakistan's biggest or most popular state. So there and his record of administration is, is pretty thin. I spoke to him last week and asked him a couple of detailed policy questions some of which he was better on the detail than others. So I did ask him, for example, Victor mentioned the impending economic crisis. I asked him whether he was willing to go to the IMF or whether he wanted to go to China to get more loans from Beijing to deal with that. And he simply said that the party's undertaking a review and he wasn't able to answer any questions on it. So I think he's going to have a lot of getting up to speed to do very quickly. And you ask whether he'll make a fast start or not, he'll quite simply have to, uh, because this financial crisis, I think, is going to hit him within months, if not weeks, of taking charge. That's going to be very difficult for him, because he's actually run on a campaign not only of trying to root out corruption from Pakistani society and Pakistani elites, but his other main promise is to set up what he calls an Islamic welfare state, which basically involves expanding the tax base and spending a lot more on public services like health and education. Now, if, as seems very likely now, he ends up having to go to the IMF for a bailout in the coming months, the IMF is likely to tell him, well, you can have this money, you can pay off your foreign creditors, but what you can't do is have a massive expansion in public spending. And It will be very interesting to see how Imran Khan reacts to that, and it will be very interesting to see how his voters react if he comes to power and then proceeds to set about cutting back public spending instead of expanding it. Finally, Victor, do you think that uh, Imran's victory is part of a sort of broader pattern in Asia with kind of celebrity figures or people who can claim to be above politics as normal coming to power? I mean, I guess uh, the obvious example would be Duterte in the Philippines, but in a sense Narendra Modi in in India as well. Is politics kind of the mould changing a bit? Yeah, maybe, you know, worldwide we are. I mean, he is in a sense a populist. And, you know, if you go to his rallies, you see these middle-aged women looking at him literally adoringly, you know, (laughs) and and they're voting for him, not, I think, because of his policies, you know, it's just because they think he's wonderful. So there is definitely that sort of charisma factor, which is very important. It was important in India, as you said, but it is a global phenomenon as well. I don't think it's a peculiarly Asian or, or South Asian phenomenon. Yes, there is a bit of a change afoot. On the other hand, you could argue that in in some ways, he's quite a traditional politician. You know, what we've seen in Malaysia, where Mahathir came back at the age of 92 to displace a government. So, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But certainly, he is a kind of popular figure, um, not a big policy thinker at all. Uh, and he's got there by virtue of him being a name and a face that everybody recognises. OK, thanks very much to Victor Mallet talking to us from Hong Kong and to Kieran Stacey, who's just been in Pakistan. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
published by American Funds Distributors Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.